0: All right, let's go to our scripture reading for this morning. We're looking at uh, various passages, uh, starting with Mark 7, John 6, and Romans 8. And I'll go ahead and uh, read this for us, and you can follow along from the slide or your own Bible or from the bulletin, Mark 7, John 6, and Romans 8. What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within out of the heart of man uh, come evil thoughts, Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. Now let's pray and dive into God's word. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for your word, and I thank you for gathering us here to to hear it and learn from it and really be transformed by it. And I pray, uh, wherever we might be uh, in our uh, spiritual walk, in our relationship with you, uh, whether it's a mature and long-term relationship or a a new and uh, unfamiliar relationship, we pray you would use your word today uh, to draw us closer to you uh, and that we will walk out uh, with a new encounter, with new realizations and new convictions uh, that will be meaningful. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, We're in the series called Worldview and I um, have a table in the bulletin um, under your notes or on the slide you can also see uh, where I have put five points of Arminianism on the left, five points of Calvinism on the right, um, just to give you a visual sort of outline of what we're going to be covering. And what's immediately noticeable here is that the five points of Calvinism are summarized by the acronym TULIP. And I'll be introducing you to each of these doctrines uh, each week, except with unconditional election, we're going to be spending uh, two weeks on, because that's the, the one that tends to raise the most questions. Uh, but today we're getting into the first one, the, the first letter, T, which stands for uh, total depravity. Right? Isn't that what you wanted to hear? You know, you wake up, it's a beautiful day, and you go, I want to go to church and hear about total depravity. Right? This is what makes my job awesome. I get to tell people about total depravity. Um I think one of the comforts in addressing a very difficult doctrine like total depravity is it confirms what the prophet said in the Bible about how our thoughts are not God's thoughts and our ways are not God's ways. And at some point, at some point as you, as you study about God's word, that has to become a reality for you where you go, you know what, that is not what I like to hear. <laughs> um, that rubs me the wrong way. At some point, something's got to do that to you if that verse is true if somehow everything in the Bible just fits so neatly in your prior conceptions and cultural uh, opinions, chances are that's not this infinite being called God that you're encountering. Chances are that's just some product of your culture. That's just some product of your imagination because there's no way in our finite minds we can conceive of someone who fits so neatly into all of our preconceived notions. At some point, God has to offend you if he's real. At some point, he has to offend you if he's real. So there's that initial comfort uh, in total depravity. Uh, if this is offending you just by the hear, hearing of the phrase, uh, good, That's, that means uh, it's working. That means you're not being naive. That means we're not just giving you what fits our cultural appetites. Um, we're about encountering the true God. Uh, here's what Arminius first argued uh, via what you might call partial depravity. And that is human nature, although it is affected, it is influenced by sin, it is not so totally affected by sin that mankind cannot choose out of their own goodness, out of their own good faith, God and repentance and obedience. So humanity is not so totally dominated by sin uh, that we cannot of our own will, of course with God's assistance, as Armenians would say, you need God's help, you need God's grace, but that brings you, uh, sort of halfway, and the other half is your will, your good will, uh, that that brings you into God's salvation. So salvation is not a unilateral work; it's a cooperative work between God and man. The Calvinist view is is that that's not what the Bible teaches, and um, that's what we're going to be examining today. Uh, and here's what I'll do: I want to first give you the the scriptural descriptions of human nature. The scriptural descriptions about Human depravity. What does the Bible say? And then address some common objections to total depravity and and the surprising comfort that's found in the conclusion to all of this. The conclusion that we draw from total depravity is actually surprisingly comforting and hence the title, Embracing Total Depravity. Okay. I know that sounds like you're embracing a porcupine, but at the end of it, I, I want to show you how embracing total depravity is actually a beautiful thing. Um, so the scriptural descriptions, common objections, and the comforting conclusion, all right, these three. So first, let's look at the scriptural descriptions, and we'll probably spend the most majority of our time today doing this, and we've got to start with the Bible, and notice I'm starting with the Bible, not with Calvin, and let's go back to Genesis. Uh, it says in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, and this is after Adam and Eve have sinned, and sin has entered into the world. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Only evil continually. And so based on that scriptural language, it's hard to see um, how that's making any room for genuine human goodness. Okay, but what about Noah? Right? Didn't he have faith and therefore win the favor of God and get saved. Well, actually, it says in the same chapter, if you, if you look, uh, it's God who had favor on Noah first. And therefore, Noah was able to walk with God. And walk means Noah lived righteously in obedience to God and uh, living according to God's will. It wasn't Noah's goodness that produced God's favor. It was God's favor that produced Noah's goodness. And so, as for the description of mankind, Noah could have fit perfectly within that same description, but God had this amazing, unmerited favor on Noah. Um, now, what does what does this mean, um, evil continually, only evil continually? How could that be? Didn't people, like, love their children or, you know, help the lady carry her groceries down the street? Or, you know, didn't people do some decent things? How could they be evil continually? So... The biblical definition of evil is important here. The biblical definition of evil is anything that falls short of God's holiness. It's anything that misses the mark of God's goodness. And it's amazing. I mean, we think, okay, that's way too high a standard. But, but recall, that's what we were made in, the image of God, is perfect holiness. That, that was our original design. That's not too high of a standard. We've just really lowered our original sin. That's all. Evil is anything that misses the mark. And so for the human soul uh, to, be, to remain as connected as they were before sin entered the world, they have to not ever miss the mark. This is how this, this relationship between God and man was to be perfectly remaining intact. Um, for the human soul to be intimately connected with the Almighty who is morally perfect, there must be a perfect moral alignment between God and man. Anything that isn't perfectly aligned is inadmissible because that will be destructive to to His creation, to His kingdom. And and what Scripture seems to be saying is it really is impossible for us to just simply align ourselves with God apart from His favor, that somehow we can conjure up our own faith and just bring ourselves to Him. It has to be somehow God aligning Himself with us by Himself. Otherwise, it's impossible. Uh, one of my favorite scenes in the movie Interstellar is the the emergency docking scene. I don't know if you guys remember that, where Cooper, uh, the the he's the main protagonist, he chases after this this spacecraft, right, that's spinning out of control after an explosion, that he was supposed to dock. And what he does is he chases after it, and then he he somehow tries to perfectly synchronize like his rotation to that spacecraft spinning out of control um, and it's and it's an intense scene and it here's what adds to the intensity the robot right the the robot caught case right this rectangular thing robot um, says to, to cooper hey it's impossible it's he's done the calculation right the robot's done the calculation it's physically impossible for you to to achieve that um, and you shouldn't even try because if you miss the mark you will you will You would blow up with it and 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 you'll die and and brand who's who's um sort of the co-pilot with him will also die it would be catastrophic but but cooper says even if it's impossible he says it's not possible but it's necessary so he goes after it and he he makes it he barely docks and then saves himself and dr brand okay and we we all kind of collectively sigh this sigh of relief now here's here's a very i think legitimate question If Case, the robot, calculated everything and said it's impossible, it's physically impossible for that to have happened, how how did it happen? How did he do the physically impossible thing? And here's the answer. You know how he did it? Hollywood. That's how he did it. It's not possible in reality, but it's possible in a fictional reality. It's possible in a in a movie that you, you, you make up. Likewise, okay, uh, on the one hand, to say it's impossible for our morally imperfect selves to align with a morally perfect God, it's just a very realistic and rational calculation, if you will. Okay. And then, on the other hand, for Arminius then to say, it's still possible, it can be done that's not that's not reality that's movie making that's that's going hollywood on the bible okay according to genesis human nature and god's moral nature were so greatly misaligned that it did lead to a catastrophic end it led to the global flood okay some people might say well that's that's all before the flood but what about after the flood didn't you know things get much better after the flood because humanity learned this lesson. Well, let's take a look. This is after the flood in chapter 8 of Genesis, in verse 21. The Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. Does this mean man has changed? Well, it says, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. This means God is saying, okay, I'm never going to curse the ground again because of man because if I were to... This global fluffing will have to come again and again and again, because the intention of man's heart is still—it's still evil from his youth, and that means childhood, infancy. So perhaps the, the outward conditions may have changed after the flood, right? Various sort of societal evils and ills were just eradicated immediately through the flood, but at the heart level, uh, human beings remain the same. Human, the human heart is still spiraling out of orbit from God's goodness. Okay. Now you, I think someone could also say, but but haven't we actually gotten better much longer over time? just not just in Genesis, but if you were to expand beyond Genesis all throughout the course of history because we have rules now we have societies, civilization, law enforcement and stuff like that. We're not living in the dark ages or the primitive sort of Old Testament times anymore, right We've progressed. Have we? Uh, Human beings. Have we as human beings progressed? Or have we simply progressed in suppressing what human beings actually are through laws and social contracts and criminal justice systems? See, what these things do, right, laws and social contracts, what they do for us is they suppress the manifestation of what's truly residing in the human heart, but it doesn't really change the heart, does it? It's like if I say to my kids, hey, don't be greedy. Share your candy with your siblings. Right? Share your candy with your brother. Share your candy with your sister. Or else, (laughs) I'm going to take all of it away. And then they proceed to share their candy with one another have I changed their greedy hearts or simply suppressed it? I've suppressed it right, through threats <laughs> and, you know, fear. The law suppresses what's in our nature. It doesn't change our nature, right? And, and this, by the way, is not just a biblical, biblical claim. This is a, secular, this is a secular claim made in secular literature as well. Uh, do you remember reading Lord of the Flies in high school and having to write like 10 essays and watch three movies of it, right? Um, here's the payoff, okay? <laughs> if you're wondering, right, what good is Lord of the Flies? Here it is. Uh, it's a story about a group of British boys who are stranded on an island, and, and very soon things go very terribly wrong, and law and order, non-existent, and they start killing each other, right? And by the end of the novel, the, the protagonist of the story, Ralph, He's trying to escape all the chaos, and he's running towards the, the beach. And behind him are these body-painted warrior boys coming after him with wooden spears, right? Just literally wanting to kill him. As Ralph gets exhausted and he collapses on, on the beach, he finds himself lying in front of a naval officer standing over him. And the officer tells him, that him and his ship and all this, the, 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 the military folks have come to save them, to rescue them. And, and I think my initial reaction was, awesome, they're here to the rescue, right? Not quite. Or here's what it says at the end of the novel, if you, if you read the novel, um, or at least if you're forced to. <laughs> this is how it ends, right? Ralph wept. Ralph wept at what at the inno- at the end of innocence the darkness of man's heart the end right ralph wept at the end of innocence at the darkness of man's heart okay because this is here's here's golding's point here's the old author's point ralph looks like he's being rescued but is he really in what sense is he being rescued when the naval officer will only take him back to the world riddled with war and violence where naval officers are necessary. And and Golding wrote this novel just after World War II, the middle of the most violent century in in world history, the 20th century. Uh, And and also historians point out 20th century was also the most anti-religious century as well. Communist China, Soviet Union, Nazi Germany. How is that world better than the jungle that he was just running away from? Are we really less violent, more civilized when we look at modern history? Golding would say no. He would say we've just replaced the wooden spears with rifles and armored battleships. So this whole argument about how we've progressed, we've developed as a civilized people, because now we have law and order, I think that only proves the Old Testament point. It's confirming the biblical diagnosis that such systems are necessary to suppress the evil that's in the human heart it makes the case that the human heart needs suppression and that it remains unchanged. Now, at this point, the, the followers of Arminius uh, could say and have said, "Well, but doesn't the Bible call people to change, to improve, to progress, uh, choose the new life, choose to draw near to God, choose this and that, that's, that's beneficial to you. Yes, right. the Bible's filled with these calls. But when you look at the rest of the scriptural data and you try to harmonize the entire Bible, what you find is that even that believing and choosing and obeying, even that is a gift from God, not our own works. Jeremiah 13.23 says this, Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. What's he saying there? The likeliness of, likeliness of you doing something good, purely good, without any selfish motives mixed into it, is as likely as an Ethiopian changing his skin color or the leopard changing his spots at will. Okay? Meaning there's absolutely no way we can do good all on our own. We can, we can try to behave well, act religiously, go to church, pray, give to charity. We can do that all day. But that will not change what's on the inside. It will not change the core of who we are. We'll only be embellishing the outside of what we are. Here's another illustration for it, a more comedic illustration. I remember hearing a Canadian stand-up comedian talking about how um, his Indian immigrant dad came to him one day and said, Son, tonight... We will become Canadians. And his son's like, um, I was already born here, so I'm already Canadian. But okay, tell me your plan, dad. How, how are you going to become Canadian? And, the, and his dad, his Indian dad goes, son, I have bought a barbecue. <laughs> and we will have a barbecue in our backyard tonight. We'll invite all our neighbors. They'll come over. They'll eat our food. And they will think we are Canadians. And, and then the son goes, Dad, if they eat our food, they will know we are absolutely not Canadians. But that's like, no, I'm going to buy hot dogs, I'm going to buy burgers, and they're going to have a great time. So that night, neighbors are over, and they're eating the food, and they're having a good time. And there's a moment when the, the father and son, their eyes meet, and, and the dad says to the son, Huh, what do you think? All right? Don't I look Canadian now? To which the son replies, I think you just look like an Indian guy living in Canada. (laughs) I thought that was really funny. And I use that to prove Jeremiah's point about us. Uh, Are we leopards that have changed our spots or are we merely leopards that have painted over the spots? With laws and social contracts, criminal justice systems with religious rhythms and behaviors and rituals. And at the heart level... At the heart level, we are still sinners. As Jesus said, those who lust after someone in their hearts have committed adultery. Those who hate someone have committed murder in their hearts. So on the outside, we can avoid all these things. But on the inside, what are we really? What does God see? I think Jesus is here agreeing with Moses' diagnosis, Jeremiah's diagnosis human nature. The Bible is amazingly consistent in its diagnosis of, of, human, of the human heart. The heart is the problem, and it remains unchanged. And no matter how many laws you put up to fortify it or suppress it, it doesn't transform the human heart. And that's why in, in our passage today that we read in Mark 7, Jesus said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Okay. So here we gain an additional insight about the human heart, the human nature. Evil, as it turns out, is not something that enters into us from the outside. Okay, uh, Some evil... Thing in media, in culture, in the education. No. It's something that enters the world from the inside. Okay. In other words, we are not sinners because there's sin out there and it's tempted us to sin. We are sinners because, or or we sin because we are sinners to begin with. We're not sinners because we sin or there's sin out there. We sin because we're sinners on the inside. Or Put it differently, it's in our behavior because it was in our nature first. It's our nature that produces our behavior, not our behavior that creates this nature. And and this makes sense also and harmonizes with what Jesus said when he said, I've come to call those who are sick, not those who are living in a sick, broken environment, but those who are themselves sick. What does that mean? Jesus is here to save us from who we are, not where we are. It is who we are that is keeping us from God, not where. What we we need is not relocation to some other place, but regeneration from the inside. Can't blame our environment. Ultimately, we can't blame our nurture. We can't blame anyone or anything. The problem is in the heart. And this is why Jesus also said in John 6.44, as we read today, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Okay? Jesus didn't say, uh, if you come to me, if you choose to come to me, then the Father will draw you near to himself. No, it's because the Father is drawing you, that is why you or anyone can come to Jesus. It's God's work of drawing causing us to draw near. It's God's grace producing our faith. It's not our faith producing God's grace, but it's God's grace producing our faith. And this is the fundamental difference between the Armenian understanding of the Bible and salvation and the Calvinistic understanding of Bible and salvation. In the Armenian understanding, faith comes first. Faith causes us to be born again. In the Calvinistic reading of the Bible, it's God's causing us to be born again that yields faith, the faithful response. And therefore, even that faith is a gift from God. And therefore, we have, as Paul says in Ephesians, nothing to boast. It's absolutely boast-free because it's all God. We see this confirmed in Acts chapter 2, that it is when the hearts of the people are cut, meaning convicted by the Spirit of God, That is when they ask Peter, what shall we do? To which Peter replies, repent and be baptized. You and your household, the promises for you and your household, repent and be baptized. It's not them coming to Peter saying, we repent, we want to be baptized. And then the Spirit begins to cause them to be born again. No, it's the other way around. The Spirit cuts them to the heart, and then they respond in faith. We see this in Apostle Paul's writing as well, where he says in Romans 8, 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, and indeed it cannot. Okay, So here the problem with the flesh, which is the biblical term for sinful nature and our sinful hearts, the problem with our sinful nature is not that it's not trying hard enough. It's not that it's tr- it's not trying hard enough to submit to God's law. The problem is it can't. It cannot. That's that's total depravity. It yeah. doesn't mean that we are as depraved as we can be, we're as evil as we can be. It means that we are debilitated in every aspect of our lives. And even if it's only at the heart level that you are depraved and infected by sin, it has this overall effect on the rest of your being, rest of your existence, and the rest of your life. It's almost like you know how my doctor would tell me, hey. You need ten, thirty minutes of sunlight every day in order for you to be just having a healthy blood level or something like that, right? Um, you need to you need to spend you know a certain portion of your day outside, or you know uh, maybe a fitness trainer will tell you you know the male body needs a certain percentage of body fat, right? Uh, what is it? Is it is it five percent? I don't know. Or else, if you go above twenty percent, then you're you're not in a good place all these sort of partial things, partial aspects about us that have a total effect on who we are, total effect on our health. If that's true of our physical body, why can't it be true of our spiritual reality? If if sin is found in your heart and heart alone, it's not in your hand, it's not in your feet, it's not in your eyes or your brain, it's in your heart, that alone is enough to infect the total of who you are, the total sum of your life. That's total depravity. It doesn't mean everyone's a Hitler. It it means we are totally infected by sin in every way. And wherever you go, you will take your sin with you. Whoever you encounter, they will encounter your sin. Because the effect is total. And it's not as though, you know, I'm only sinful towards those I I, I don't care at all about or those who consider me to be their enemies. And when it's with my loved ones and the people I deeply care about, they don't see any of my sins. It's actually the opposite. The people who care the most about me and I care the most about are the ones who know most about my sin. What does that tell you? My depravity isn't partial. It's total. It's everywhere I go. Right? If you, if you get to know me, you'll get to know my sins. No, Pastor John, you're not. I don't, see, I don't see your sins. You just don't know me well enough yet, okay? We got to get to know each other better. We got to have more conversations together. Okay so that's the biblical description and you can always revisit this. The point I'm trying to show you here is as I sh- show you from from the scriptures old, both the Old Testament and the New without quoting Calvin a single time, I'm trying to show you that the scriptural data is best explained by total depravity and it's not as well explained by partial depravity. Now let me turn quickly to some sort of additional very commonly raised objections to Totally depravity. They're common, they're not unreasonable. And so we should um, respect whoever raises these objections and try to with respect and, and gentleness respond. The first objection is this. This is just so depressing. <laughs> okay. That's the that's the first objection. This is so bleak. Right? To say that we're totally depraved is to say we're ultimately right selfish, self-serving, right? To like a hopeless extent, right? And that is such a bleak picture of huma- humanity and human nature. Okay. Here's something else you should know, and that is that the secular view, the alternative view, the secular view is actually much, much bleaker. Uh, Richard Dawkins, he's the atheist biologist at Oxford, very anti-religious scientist. He wrote this book um, early during his career called titled The Selfish Gene, and here's what he says in that book, quote, we are survival machines, robot vehicles blindly programmed to preserve the selfish molecules known as genes. Any altruistic system is inherently unstable because it is open to abuse by selfish individuals ready to exploit it. Now, what is his solution? He says, quote, let us therefore try to teach generosity and altruism because we are born selfish, let us understand what our own selfish genes are up to because we may then at least have a chance to upset, upset their design, uh, something that no other species have ever aspired to do. We alone on Earth can rebel against the tyranny of the selfish replicators, referring to our biology. Now, just a few years after writing this, Dawkins came out saying that he, gre- he agrees with certain scientific findings that human beings don't have free will. Uh, Free will is not visible. It's not empirical. It's not like something you can put in a lab and test. So you should treat it like a philosophical and religious concept at best, but it's not a scientific one, so you shouldn't believe in it. So what he says is now, we are only what we are predetermined to be by our genetic makeup, and we have no control whatsoever when it comes to what our genes drive us to do. Meaning what? He kind of has to take back what he said in his first writing about how we should choose to be altruistic and and generous and choose to upset our genetic design and rebel against the selfish gene. Why? Free will doesn't exist. There's no such thing as try. All we are is our genes. And our genes are selfish. That's all we will ever be. My question, is, my question is simply this. Is that alternative view of human nature any less bleak than the one I just presented to you from the scriptures? I would say the secular view is actually much bleaker because in, in the biblical worldview, there's actually, there's actually a way out. <laughs> there is a way out of selfishness. This gospel offers us a new heart so we can utilize our free will, which is real, by the way. You, you do have a free will for good or for bad, you can actually break free from the tyranny of your selfish gene, from your selfish nature, according to the gospel. Whereas in the secular view, your genes are all that defines who you are, and there's nothing you can do about it. You're predetermined. And if your genes are selfish by nature, then you're you're stuck in this perpetual, permanent state of selfishness. I think the biblical view is much more optimistic. Okay, second objection. Um, if we are incapable of choosing any good or choosing God on our own, why does God command us to do good then? Okay, what's, what's the point of all this? Isn't it kind of unfair uh, for him to command us to do something we cannot perform and then hold us responsible for? Okay, does that make sense? And then, and then doesn't that also undermine human free will? How do we actually have free will according to the Bible? So let me see if I can give you a brief answer to this, and some of this will be addressed when we get to unconditional election as well. Here's the, here's the first answer. This question usually comes from this false assumption that with responsibility always comes ability. That's not the case, okay? Just because you have the responsibility to do something doesn't mean you have the ability to do it, okay? You know the, the line from Spider-Man, right? With great power comes great responsibility, right? That That might be true. But the reverse is not true. It's not necessarily true. With great responsibility doesn't always come great power. Do we have the responsibility of loving our neighbors and even our enemies, always? And in every case, yes. According to God's standards, yes. How's that been going for you? (laughs) Not not so great, probably, right? We, We have the responsibility, but not the ability. And not having the ability doesn't remove the responsibility. So that's not a valid objection to say, well, we don't have the ability, so we shouldn't be responsible for it. It's like, do my children have the, the ability to constantly always be, be nice to their siblings and be respectful toward their parents? No. But do they have the responsibility? Yes. Okay. Well, what about free will? Do we have it then? How can we have free will if we're not able to freely choose God and his morals all on our own? The important thing here is defining what do we, what do we mean by free? Because nobody really defines what's what's free when we talk about free, and that's important. Being free in your will is one thing, but being free in your heart is another thing. Okay, here's an illustration. Uh, if I have 2020 vision, which I don't, obviously. If I had 2020 vision, am I free to see? Yeah, you can say that. I'm, I'm free to see because I have 2020 vision. I'm as free as anyone can be. But if I am stuck in a pitch dark cave without fire without light am i still free to see All right now 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 the meaning of free is different right now i'm not so free to see so having free will is like having 2020 vision okay if your heart is a dark cave and it affects everything you do then having free will with a heart that's bound to sin isn't so meaningful is it because only thing you will freely choose to do is what your darkened heart desires. So what, what, how valuable is free will in that case?
1: Maybe,
0: maybe the suppression of free will is what's needed than just the exercise of free will. Right? Or I can use a, use a different analogy. Am I free to run for the President of the United States? Well, uh, I think physically speaking, yes. I think I have the stamina. But, but see, even though I'm a U.S. citizen, I wasn't born here. I was born in South Korea. I was born in Seoul, and that means, according to the Constitution, I cannot run for president. Okay, so am I still free to run for president, or no? Physically speaking, I am. Legally speaking, I'm not. Okay, depends on what you mean by free. But in this case, it's, it's it feels like a yes and no, but it's more so a no. Right? When you when you cut down to the the right bottom of it all, it, it's ultimately a no. Are we free to choose God? You can argue that we're free to do things and do this and that. But are we free in our hearts to use our free will in that right way? We're not. Because our hearts are not inclined to surrender our, our self-interest and live in the way that God wants us to live. Our hearts are too self-absorbed. Our, our hearts are too selfish. So so like the analogy, it's more so a no than a yes. Okay. So you have to understand what what, when people raise a question about free, what do you mean by free? Are you, do you mean free in my will, free in my heart, free physically? Free? What do you mean by free? Right. So let me just wrap up that point by saying, is that bleak to say we're not, our hearts are not able to choose God on our own because it's been darkened? Yes, that's bleak. Is it bleaker than the alternative view of the selfish gene? No. It's infinitely more optimistic. So let me close with that. The good news that's hidden in this Okay? the good news that follows from this doctrine of depravity, total depravity, that actually invites us to embrace it rather than rejecting it. Okay? What, could, what could be the good news that's packed in this that leads us to embrace it? Here it is. That when you find yourself more helpless, more sinful than you ever thought possible in your, in your, in your life, that is when you find God to be more powerful to save you more gracious towards you than you ever dared to hope. That's the whole point of this doctrine. It's not to scare you. It's not to depress you. It's not to give you a bleak outlook on life. It's to uplift you with the good news by pointing you to the grace of God. It says to sinners who are desperately sick, who are desperately wicked at heart, the doctor is ready to see you. Is this you? If this is you, the healer is here for you. The one who came to call those who are sick, those who are totally misaligned with God and have no way of saving themselves, that Christ, he's here. He wants to see you. Embracing total depravity leads you to embrace your healer. It's like the hymn, Come Ye Sinners, says, Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore, Jesus ready, stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. See, the irony in this is if you cannot self-identify, if you cannot see yourself through the biblical mirror as a poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore human being, then guess what? Jesus will have nothing to do with you because he came for the sick and not the well. He did not come for those who are well. He came for those who are sick, who cannot save themselves. It is when you see yourself in the spiritual mirror, the Bible, and see its validity, and you agree with this diagnosis of your heart, that you agree that this is true of you, that is when Jesus says, I want everything to do with you. You're, you're exactly the kind of person I came for. I want to heal you. How? By carrying your sickness For you and dying for you on the cross so that through my death, through my sacrifice, through my selflessness, you'll be healed of your selfishness. You'll be healed and set free, set free from your selfish, sinful nature. This is the comfort of the good news. It's you can't save yourself. You're utterly helpless. You're not able. So look to your Savior who is. Now you're finally ready to encounter the total grace of God as a totally fallen human being. Here's the additional comfort that follows from this. If you think about it, if as Arminius says or said, I am partially, just partially responsible for my own salvation, meaning I have something to contribute to, to gaining my own salvation, doesn't that mean that I can just as easily contribute to losing my salvation as well? if it is my freedom of choice that led me into salvation, can't I just as easily choose my way out of it? (laughs) And, And so I agree with the theologian who said, you know, if we could lose our salvation because of our sins and continual sins, we would. If we could lose our salvation, we would. All of us would. But what if What if we were so totally helpless that God had to be totally saving, totally sovereign over our salvation, where he is 110% in control? And what sustains us is not our choice but his. Then I can never lose his love for me. Because it's not grounded in me, it's grounded in him. He is the one holding fast to me, not me holding fast to him. But me holding fast to him represents the relationship I now have with him. It's imperfect, it's weak, but I'm hanging on to my father. One of the things that my daughter, my youngest two-year-old, Joni, what she loves to do is something that my older kids did when they were younger too is whenever I I hold her and walk down the, the stairs, whether it's to our garage or to the living room, uh, I, w- I would be certainly holding on to her as tight as I can, right? But something she would do is she would hold on to me as well. She would hold on to my collar or my shoulder or my neck or my ear sometimes. She would just be clinging on to me. Now, here's a question for you. How effective is that? Like, if I were to, if I were to just, oops, is she going to be dangling on my ear with her bare hands? No. If I let go, She drops. But what does that mean then? What is this this ineffective holding on to the father thing? What does that show you? It shows you she's my child. It shows you she's leaning on me. It shows you she's resting in me. It's not because it depends on her. It still depends on me. But it represents her trust. It represents her dependence. That's your faith in the Lord. That's your faith in God. It doesn't depend on your faith, but it represents your relationship to him who has been gracious to you, who's totally saved you from your total helplessness. So praise be to God. And if God, as Paul says, is for us, if God is holding on to you, who can be against us? What can separate us from the love of God? Even if you, you were to let go, he wouldn't let go of you. So if you embrace this doctrine of total depravity, what you're really doing is you're falling in, into the embrace of your Heavenly Father. The total embrace of your Heavenly Father. Let's pray. Lord, Father, God, we uh, we thank you for being our good Father who speaks to us the truth, not because it suits our appetite, but because it's good for us and it leads us to you. And it helps us to see you for who you really are. Um, would you soften our hearts to receive this? Uh, because, Lord, the, the heart that has been hardened um, by its own nature and by the world cannot receive this. It doesn't find this attractive. But, Lord, if, if, if any part of us finds this beautiful, we know it's your work in us. It's your Holy Spirit convicting us. It's your, it's your truth transforming us. We thank you for that, and we pray that you continue to do that work in all of us and draw us closer to your truth and not only help us understand it with our minds, but help us to begin clinging on to you by faith through our trust and obedience. Help us to make changes we ought to make. Help us to begin to realign our lives with with your commands, with your word, rather than simply going according to what we think is right and good and pleasing. Father, we want to please you. Father, we want to live according to your will. Help us in this, we pray in your son's name. Amen.